Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Way. Today, I have Dr. Alex Melkumian with me, and he's a dear friend from the Financial Therapy Association. We've known each other for, I don't know, eight years or more. We've been at multiple conferences, swapped many ideas. And so being able to interview him today is a great honor. What's even more exciting is he has a new book out, Financial Psychology, and it's all about financial stress and the gig economy and how to navigate that well. So Alex is going to be walking us through that. Alex, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Great seeing you. Yes, yes. So let's just dive right in. Tell me a little bit about financial stress and then a little bit about the gig economy. So financial stress is uh, not as complicated as uh, we, we make it out to be. It's, it is exactly what it sounds like. And uh, it's you know our, our concern and worry that we're not going to make our ends meet. And uh, it's a concern and worry about our financial future. And we can kind of start with some context and, and data immediately. As you very well know, uh, the American Psychological Association has put out a, a Stress in America survey, which actually started back in 2008 at the uh, tail end of the Great Recession. And um, every year, money is basically the top uh, stressor for most Americans. Right. Uh, I think it's cited as uh, you know three-fourths of uh, Americans are stressed about money every single year. The only two years that we were uh, not as stressed about money was in 2016, where the election uh, was a higher concern for most Americans. And then in the last year, in 2021, the um, COVID economy and uh, COVID pandemic definitely topped the, uh, the stressor uh, list uh, over money. Yeah, large changes in society add a layer of stress as well, right? So it's like the election and COVID are stressful just unto themselves, but then there's financial implications often associated with political change or pandemics, certainly, you know, and then layer into that, which is your kind of area of expertise now is about the gig economy and what life is like as someone that works in the gig economy. So can you tell us a little bit about who's working in the gig economy? Tell, tell us about the range of people that have gig based work and what that means. Sure. Well, actually, if we can kind of even go back a little bit to the discussion of the financial stress. You know, financial stress, from my point of view, is an epidemic in our society. Amen. Amen. It's really uh, something that no one is talking about. And because of that, you know, financial therapy and financial psychology have been two burgeoning fields um, that have risen out of the need to uh, deal with this stress and help as many people as possible. So um, financial stress is really a, a um, an underdiagnosed, I can say, and undertreated uh, condition by the mental health profession. So um, both mental health professionals and therapists 
I've been dealing with clients, you know, feeling overwhelming emotions and increasingly difficult times. So I've definitely seen it in my clinical practice at Financial Psychology Center. And that was really the inception for me of um, wanting to be a financial psychologist and financial therapist. Uh, you know, my, my story starts, you know, around 2008 when I was just a clinician who was helping clients who started talking about financial stress at the time of losing their home or home going into foreclosure or losing a third of their financial of their um, retirement portfolio. And when I started looking around to other mental health professionals, um, I kind of heard crickets, unfortunately. Nobody was really talking about that. And I so I, I definitely saw the need for this type of work. And uh, I've definitely focused on it ever since. The reason why I started, you know, wrote the book about uh, the gig economy to kind of answer your question and circle back to that is because when I saw, um, as a clinician, my my focus is on helping people uh, sort of uh, who need the, the, the help most, right? Okay. And we, when we look at who have a stable earning income, they actually vary quite a bit in how and what they can do with money and how what a type of advice they they're able to get and when i actually saw that it's the gig economy workers who don't have a stable income those are the people strategies and are, are most impacted by their money by their emotions and by their financial beliefs so that's why i started to kind of delve and and, and uh, focus my work on the gig economy so, Alex, what you're saying, it, it delayed a little bit there. So I'm going to try to recap it and see if we can get it nice here is in our labor market, there are people that have jobs with consistent income that's predictable. And then there are people that are in our economy that have the gig economy where they may have a job this week, next week, next month under contract period, but then they may go a period of time without being able to get a contract at work. And it creates a lot of intermittent income and that makes it psychologically more challenging to plan and and predict what where they're going to be in the future is that what we're getting at absolutely what we actually call that is uh the feast and famine cycle within the intermittent income population right and it, it kind of makes sense that uh one one moment you get a big contract this was something that uh happened to several of my clients I live in Los Angeles, so very close to the Hollywood and, and film industry. So there's uh, numerous actors walking around uh, L.A. And, uh, you know, several of friends were celebrating big contract wins. And they're not necessarily, um, you know, as prudent or uh, inclined to managing their money in a very prudent way. So uh, when they got that big contract, they didn't necessarily have a strategy for uh, you know savings and, and setting uh, setting money aside for taxes and things like that, which would be a natural conversation for uh, you know most planners, <laughs> most right. financial planners, right? Right. And so you know six months later and nine months later, the same colleague or the same friend or the same client is telling me how they're in the in the famine. A, a part of the sites that go along with that um, that part of the cycle are, are really dire and extreme. You know, in some ways, uh, it's probably not a perfect correlation, but I think about like eating disorders and the binge purge cycle, right? It's like 
consume all I can and then kind of feel this disgust and then purge it all out. It's not perfect. I mean, no, no disrespect to the eating disorder world, but it, there's something about that that feels familiar. I can agree with you more. And actually, there's much more parallel between, you know, how we handle money to how we handle our, our food and diet um, and the, the, the health and fitness industry. I mean, I think the overall uh, formula in, for both professions is pretty simple right? Don't, don't spend more than you earn. And, right. uh, you know, exercise and expend enough calories more than than you intake more than you eat. Pretty simple. But somehow, you know, in, in both fields, uh, so many people are not able to stick to, you know, these these narratives, these um, hypotheses. And what we're seeing as clinical psychologists, I'm sure I have a couple of friends who are personal trainers, uh, time and time again, uh, we're seeing people sort of, um, I guess maybe the right word is relapse uh, into, you know, some uh, uh, poor behavior uh, that's that's led by uh, negative beliefs, that, that's uh, led by negative emotions. Um, and in the world of financial psychology, financial therapy, I would say the two most impactful negative emotions are shame and deprivation. Mm. shame and deprivation so i feel ashamed that you know i'm horrible with money i made another mistake and the sense of judgment and and the the financial inner critic is what i call that it can be really you know relentless yeah um, right and the on the other flip side of that is the deprivation right um when can i get to that point in my life where i don't have to worry about you know, living paycheck to paycheck, or even, you know, if I'm not living paycheck to paycheck, there's always a next tier that I'm, you know, sort of grasping towards that I, that always seems to be just out of reach. You know, borrowing from the eating world, there's satiation, right? There's mm -hmm. a, when we're eating, there's a natural level of satiation, which if we pay attention to our body will cue us to when we've had enough food for a particular period of eating. But I don't know that we have that same satiation mechanism around our finances. And in the same way that we do expect to continually eat over the whole course of our life, we do have to continually nourish ourselves. We, we need a certain level of financial nourishment ongoing. You know, I was talking with uh, an estate planning professional recently, and she was talking about how uh, dependent people, even on trusts that pay income, become. And because they're very much aware that they need the income from the trust to continue to support them. And if it gets cut off it, or reduced by some, it evokes a threat response, right? It's, I'm used to being able to eat a large plate of spaghetti every night. And now you're going to give me a two-thirds plate? Yeah. So maybe you know, another corollary between like, we're used to certain proportion sizes of, of food or money. And if that gets constrained, it really evokes this threat response. And uh, in the gig economy, you're not getting the same proportion for each job necessarily, right? So it's your mind is having to do a lot of work to predict and manage well, how much money am I going to get for this contract versus that contract? Is that a fair understanding? I absolutely love how you framed it. And uh, I love the word satiation. Uh, I didn't think of it myself. Uh, you just brought it up. But when, when you did uh, mention it, uh, we actually do have something, a concept in the financial world. And that concept, 
rarely gets talked about, but it's um, what is enough? That is the yeah. question. Right. right. And I, I know sort of in our financial wellness bubble, there are a few financial coaches and professionals who have been asking that question. What is enough? Right. Uh-huh. And it really kind of um, goes at the consumer culture that our society is really has been uh, living in for the past, what, mm, 50, 70 years since probably 1950s, I would say. Yeah, it, 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 my understanding is the post-industrial revolution and then the post-World War II were two major okay. sh- continual shifts. And now we're very much just live in a consumer society. The purpose of living is consumption. Right. Uh, relative to what psychology and philosophy has long known is that a well-lived life is not based around consumption, but up around meaning and relationship. And finding that balance between meaning relationship and living in the reality of a consumption world. And I don't know about you, Alex, I'm not advocating that people give up consuming. You know, we don't need to all go live in a monastery somewhere necessarily. Absolutely. That would be an extreme. That would be the other, you know, in my own way, I kind of took it to the other extreme because like, oh, well, being a consumer is really bad. So I started shutting down any materialistic desires and try to become more and more spiritual and, uh, <laughs> I end up with some pretty significant resentment and depression around going too far the other way. So yeah. I want to be, we're sensitive to that reality, but it is, it's not an easy question to answer. It seems it's a simple question, but not an easy answer, right? How much is enough? Right. And I think the the answer is balance uh, is exactly how you're framing it. And that's how we can sort of continue the conversation about negative emotions or really powerful emotions when we talked about shame and, and, and deprivation, those emotions uh, make money the polarizing entity that it is, right? So if we can't have it all or have as much money as we want, then we're going to sort of reduce our consumption altogether and go to the other extreme. And we're going to come right back to the diet and exercise field where that's the yo-yo diet. <laughs> right? yeah. and the yo-yo diet really talks about a person can sustain a really you know regimented diet uh, and exercise plan for a month uh-huh. two months three months maybe even six months but at some point there comes a time when you know your mindset becomes hey when is it my time to relax and eat you know that cake that, I'm, <laughs> that i've been craving because right. I've, I've been feeling deprived Yes. Right. Yes. And so the same thing happens with money. If I'm on a really strict budget, and I love Dave Ramsey, uh, I can t- I tell you a little bit about a personal uh, background story. Yeah, That's love how it. I actually got into uh, financial therapies because my wife um, had a debting issue. Right? Uh-huh. And she started reading uh, Dave Ramsey, I think early 2000s. And uh-huh. when I picked up the book, I said, wow, this is amazing. But this is applied psychology, right? Um, yes. And, and so, but his method is very much extreme. And I think he would say the same thing. Yeah. So his method works for a certain part of the population, but it you know, may not work for everybody. Right. And what we've seen is if we would sort of take some of the things that he's implemented, but kind of adjust it, what is the first thing that we can adjust? And it's that extreme, instead of going to the extremes and addressing it that way, we could do it in a more balanced way. 
and avoid the negative emotion of deprivation so that it's a long lasting approach. It's a long lasting strategy instead of, Hey, I'm going to do three, six months, you know, get my finances, finances into shape. Right. Right. It's not a get rich quick scheme. It's more of a way of life. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, Please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. So that it's a long-lasting approach. It's a long-lasting strategy instead of, hey, I'm going to do three, six months, you know, get my finances into shape. Right. Right. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. Yeah. It's more of a way of life. You know, I, I was introduced to uh, intuitive eating a little while ago, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that area from the food and nutrition world, but it they really looked at how the diet mentality paradoxically ends up leaving people less healthy and more often more overweight. Like right. diet mentality actually paradoxically creates more problems than it solves. And I think that's what you're talking about here is budget mentality or budget restriction mentality can paradoxically on the surface, seemingly create good results, much like a lot of diets, they can get good results, 30 days, 60 days, and it feels great. But when we're psychologically coming at these problems from a place of deprivation and restriction, we're cutting off many things that are really part of mental health and vitality, pleasure being a major part of mental health relationship being a major part of mental health. And when we restrict the type of food we eat, we restrict the type the type of people we can spend time with typically because food is a communal process. The same is true of money, right? Money is a communal process. And if I want to live on beans and rice and you know only go to the public parks and all that, it really narrows the number of people I can interact with. And I'm not excluding people that have a certain amount of means that may be what they can only do. So really complex, but I, I, you know, Alex, I appreciate it. It's always this balance. Like, ah, I'm a fan of complexity. And I think, you know, I like you saying financial stress is really not that complicated. Right. Because it is this back and forth between like, there is a simplicity to it and a complexity. Well, if I can help to sort of unpack the layers, right? If we yeah. look at actually at money as, as a complex thing, but then we can look at the different layers. We can look at the narrative layer. We can look at the cultural layer. We can look at the relational layer and see what is impacting our financial behavior the most and sort of prioritize it in that way, right? The next yeah. thing I want to bring in is, uh, there was a study, I think, in 2020 that linked um, money, food, and sex as uh, being processed in the same part of the brain in the, um, I think it's in the basal ganglia, which is the emotional center of, of the brain, yeah. the limbic system, right? Yeah, so absolutely. 
money taps into our, our primitive uh, response, mm -hmm. uh, just the same way that food and, and sex do. So right. that's no wonder are we having, you know, a very similar correlationary <laughs> conversation about money and uh, food, for instance, right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think I appreciate that because I, I think that's where I've been spending more and more time is in the neuroscience area and understanding how are humans wired? Like, what is the way that we're wired? And recognizing and seeing how there's parallels within the broader animal kingdom even helps, uh, for me at least, give greater validity to like, okay, here, here's where we're at. And so oftentimes we approach the topic of money from our neocortex and prefrontal cortex, which is our thinking, rational, reflective brain, moral decision-making, moral rationing part of our brain. But what's really happening is so much of our money decisions are actually coming from our brainstem and our limbic system. And yes. You know, like a great, Thank you for bringing that up. a great example of this, right. Is yesterday I went to lunch with a, a buddy of mine and, to be honest, like we're not in a deprivation uh, financial reorganization, but we are intentionally like I need to we need to make some shifts in the household finances just with some changes. And so just trying to be thoughtful about how much money I'm spending on eating out. But there I am out to lunch with my buddy yesterday. And this never happens, but he forgot his wallet in the truck. I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> but in that split second, I was like, oh, I'll pick it up. It was an automatic response. It was relational. I care about him. I trust him. This is not a regular thing that he does. Like this was the first time he's ever left the wallet in the truck. So it's not like he was taking advantage of me. But, you know, afterwards I was like, well, okay. Yeah. The $12 is not going to make or break the budget, but it, all those little things, all those automatic decisions do add up to a cumulative hundreds of dollars per month to start to have some impact. And, but in that moment, I wasn't thinking about budget. I was thinking about friendship and facilitation and let's just get to lunch. I'm ready to eat. Right. So I wasn't even consciously thinking all those thoughts. They were, they happened. And now as I'm telling the story, like I'm giving meaning to it, which is coming from that. Right. So when we, I love the example of the story and I, if I would second that, analyze it uh, right here, right now, um, it may be that you're sort of on the one hand avoiding a bit of that feeling of deprivation because one option was let's not even go eat. Right. So right. Uh, we don't want to go there. And then there's another part of us neurologically, um, uh, something called the mirror neuron. Yeah. The mirror neuron helps us to feel empathic. It's called the empathic neuron, right? Uh -huh. It helps us to feel what the other person is feeling right now. Like, putting ourselves in the other person's shoe, yep. right? So you identify that same empathic uh, uh, emotion of, you know, you forgetting your wallet in the past. And all yes. of a sudden you're, you know, forking the 12 bucks or whatever it was for the bill. And that's how the neurology of, of, uh, uh, of our brains, uh, you know, <laughs> led you to, uh, to cover the bill. You know, I didn't think about that layer of having been in the spot where, you know, I had left money behind in my car or wherever and needed someone to help me out. And that that at, at an unconscious level was driving some of that um, process. But there's also a deep relational history with this friend, right? There's a deep trust. And so it's, I don't feel like I'm being exploited. I feel like we take care of each other and it's not a problem to use money to do that. And that's another role that money plays as a way of caring for each other 
and just I knew he was stressed. He was coming off a call, and and that's probably partly why he left the wallet in the car. Is he wasn't, and so I was like, and of course I'm giving meaning now as we're talking about it. But this was all happening in split second, and so if we're get judgmental about why did we do that, most of the time many of our money decisions are not consciously thought through. There we give them conscious meaning after the fact. But they're happening at a deeper level. Now, Alex, I want to come back because you've got this great book, Financial Psychology, that's coming out. Stress, financial stress, the gig economy. But what's even more exciting is a lot of times we tell people like, oh, here's the problem. Oh, great. Thanks. Another problem to worry about. <laughs> but what's different is uh, as, a, as a mental health professionalist, we also focus on the solution and the interventions. And you talked about before we hopped on this call, uh, the interview that you have kind of three models or ways of helping people start to work on either reducing the financial stress, alleviating it. Can you walk us through some of those ideas that people can start to implement to work on their financial stress? Absolutely. So I think we actually kind of started to touch on that quite a bit in your example with your friend and the discussion of um, money being related to you know food. And sort of the avoidance of any, um, you know, hugely extreme or negative approaches, right? Mm -hmm. so that's definitely one of them. And if we would, as a, as psychologists or mental health professionals, we would qualify that as a behavioral intervention, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times behavioral interventions and behavioral finance kind of focuses on like sort of a quicker way of addressing certain things. And it's not necessarily a, a magic pill. But it, it is, you know, something that we can do in the, immediately in the moment to, you know, maybe it's an opposite action. If you're having an inclination to spend um, and you're, you have an issue with shopping and retail therapy, right? Yeah. Doing opposite action and, and having like, for instance, a 24 or 48 hour rule. Yes. Right? Yep. Absolutely. Some of the yeah. psychology. Another really uh, impactful uh, intervention is on linking our credit cards or debit cards from our Amazon carts and, and our shopping <laughs> carts, right? So you have to go and get the card and then type in the number, blah, 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 right? Right, so right. That's another behavioral uh, way of doing it. Yes. But also, what I love is that you brought up the, the meaning making. Yes. And humans are meaning making machines, as, as Victor Frankl said. Yeah. So uh, in the end, it is really important to dig down deep in there because, you know, if we continue to address things on the behavioral level, I kind of look at it as more of a surface level approach. Yes. Yeah. Right. And in order to have a lasting change, uh, you know, hopefully a lifetime of lasting change, we have to address it on the, uh, the unconscious level, the attachment level. And yeah. here we are kind of delving into your level of expertise on the attachment theory. Um, yeah. So, and I'm curious to what you have to say about that. Yeah. Well, I think the attachment theory, right. is about our very normal animal need to be bonded in close relationships with others as a part of our survival mechanism, meaning making and relational capacity. And so, right. If we have, I have a, you know, a orientation towards anxious attachment and, so there can also be, that can be a part of the decision-making process is I don't want my friend to be upset with me or 
maybe I didn't feel anxiety about him being upset, but now I'm starting to ruminate like, Oh, I just spent this $12. Now I got to go home and talk to my wife. Like, Hey, you know, I was out to lunch with my, with Dana and uh, I spent the $12, right? Like my brain is going to go to that relational rumination. And that's part of that anxious attachment orientation. That's based in the early caregiving experiences that are, takes a lot of work to continue to rewire into relational security secure attachment, which my wife and I are very much on that journey where she gives me relational experiences where she's accepting and acknowledging and non-reactive. And so on this scenario, I can go home and have more increasing confidence because over multiple experiences, she knows Dana. She knows that I get a lot of enjoyment and pleasure. And so she'll acknowledge and say, okay, not a big deal. Yeah. Yes. We are working towards this bigger financial goal of being intentional in these categories, but no problem. Acceptance. And having that experience psychologically of being accepted for something that felt like a a money mistake or a money betrayal, depending on how extreme you get in your head, is a corrective experience, right? And so attach our attachment system needs corrective experiences relationally where we're, we're seen, received, and cared for. So yeah, I really liked when you were just explaining a little while ago about Balancing the complexity and simplicity is our relationship with money is complex, but there we can break it down into smaller pieces that make it more understandable. And that's where working with someone like Alex or myself or another financial therapist can be so helpful is we can start to gain the knowledge and the awareness that we need to maneuver through this more effectively. It doesn't mean we're going to stop feeling financial stress. Alex, uh, are we going to ever get to a point where we never feel any financial stress again? an unrealistic expectation in the same way uh, that, you know, any therapist would tell a couple that if you expect never to fight about uh, anything (laughs) or coming to therapy would uh, alleviate all of your uh, quarrels, that's not realistic either, right? So some level of stress is appropriate. You know, financial stress is actually a call to action is the way I usually frame it. That's the positive side of financial stress is it's a mm-hmm. bell that says something needs to be a paid attention to here. And exactly. so we actually, many people try to turn away or minimize the fact that they're feeling stress, but that actually has more negative repercussions than facing the stress and working through it. Absolutely. So I think in my book, I talk about uh, something called emotional granularity. Um, and it's a, a, a fancy term. I think it, it was coined either by Susan David or some, uh, another uh, psychological researcher. Uh-huh. And what it means is um, we sort of label, uh, you know, use financial stress or stress in, uh, in general as a label to cover up un- underlying emotions, mm. right? It's kind of, it becomes an umbrella term. We walk around and we go, you know what? I'm just, st- I'm stressed. I'm financially stressed. I'm stressed about money. Well, what right. is it that you're stressed about? specifically and that's the idea of emotional granularity is breaking it down and and specifying are you worried about not being able to go out to lunch with your friend (laughs) or are you for instance uh worried about uh not getting a promotion at work and therefore the strategy to deal with that becomes completely different but as long as you we keep it at Oh, I'm just financially stressed. We cannot delve into, you know, 
what the specific emotions are, and we can't then uh, delve into what the solution and the strategy is. We got to drill deeper into like, I'm sad, or I'm scared, or I'm angry, or I'm feeling shameful, or embarrassed. I'm, because- I'm nervous that I'm not going to get this uh, promotion. And, you know, the, the well-being of my family depends on it. So what am I going to do? I'm actually going to, you know, take a whole week and then really go in and prepare as much as possible and yeah. leave no stones unturned. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a great place to wrap this interview up for today. There's so much more that we could talk about, but emotional granularity is a great concept for people to walk away with is if you find yourself saying, I'm just so stressed about money, draw yourself down into what about money in particular are you stressed, right? What's the topic area? And then what's the emotion specifically? Is it um, sad, fearful, angry, resentment? Shameful because those different emotional states need something slightly different in response. Alex, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Where can they find your book and all those other good things? My book is available on Amazon. It's uh, Financial Psychology, Restoring Financial Wellness in a Post-COVID Economy. And I'm on most major social media, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter as a Financial Psychology Center. That's incredible. Uh, Alex, thank you for the work that you do to help people work on their relationship with money. I'm so grateful for your friendship and I look forward to a future interview and more importantly, time just hanging out. Likewise. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Take care. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.